0: Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Rick?
1: I'm doing great, Sarah. Yourself?
0: Not too bad, live in the dream as an infection preventionist.
1: Yeah, it seems that spring's here too, which is nice. Uh, Weather certainly seems to have changed, although it may get a little colder the next couple of days, I hear.
0: Yeah, the sunshine sure is nice today.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we have a super exciting day here today. We get to talk to Dr. Mark Rupp, who wears many hats at Nebraska Medicine and UNMC. And I, I, I won't even try to list them all because I'm sure I'll leave something out. But since he's my boss, I have to say that he is the Division Director for Infectious Disease, as well as Medical Director for Infection Prevention, amongst many other things. So delighted to have you here, Mark. Thanks for joining us.
2: Yeah, Rick, thank you. It's uh, really a pleasure for me to, to join the group, and I'm really looking forward to it. And, you know, Sarah, you, you mentioned in your introductory comment that, you know, you were living the dream. And I know a lot of us use that term kind of loosely and, and somewhat uh, flippantly, but, you know, um, working in infection control, man, it is a dream. It really is. You know, when you think about the incredible impact that we have uh, you know, within our organizations and the vitally important mission that we get to work on, um, you know, it is really a dream job. And I wish that more people were really familiarized with what infection control is all about and the impact that we have. And I don't know, maybe with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, people have come around to appreciate uh, what infection preventionists do for an organization, the deep knowledge base that they have, and really all the good that uh, is done by infection control.
0: Yes, I totally agree with you. And I will say when I got my master's degree, my dream job was to be an infection preventionist. And here I am. So I really am living the dream. And it's yeah. amazing. I love it.
1: Yeah, you know,
2: a lot of folks go into into nursing or into, you know, being a physician and they really just uh, infectious diseases, for instance, um, and they really don't have any specific knowledge of infection control or what it entails, And, and that's something I wish we could
1: change.
0: Hopefully we can steer some people that way with this podcast. I think that's one of our goals.
1: Yeah, great plug. We definitely need more people to uh, get invested in infection prevention uh, going forward. So, definitely, definitely. So, um, Mark. So obviously, you're passionate about infection control, um, since we just talked about that. Um, and you're also an infectious disease provider. How did how did we get to to this uh, interest in your career? Where did this all start? Um, I don't
2: know. Process of elimination in some way. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think that many of us, our careers take uh, interesting turns and, you know, if there's anything that uh, I would tell young listeners would be just to, uh, you know, stay, stay in tune and take advantage of opportunities that are, are presented to you. I mean, for me, I, I went into, to, you know, ed- engineering as an undergraduate. Um, part of that was because I've always been sort of a belt and suspenders guy, and I needed a plan B. I, I thought I wanted to go to med school, but I also wasn't confident enough to say, yeah, I'm going to get in. And so I you know, was looking for a, a, a plan B, if you will. So I actually went through college in chemical engineering, um, but very, very quickly realized that um, you know, I could do engineering, but I was never going to be very good at it, and it wasn't something that I really liked. So uh, medicine was for me from very early. Uh, when I went into um, medicine, you know, I thought initially I wanted to be a surgeon when I was in med school. And so I did all kinds of surgical subspecialties for my electives. You know, I did plastics and ENT and orthopedics. and um, at some point along the line, realized that um, I wanted to, and, and I hope this doesn't come across wrong in a, in a pejorative way or anything, but, you know, I realized that my approach to patients was different than a lot of the folks that I was working with. And I, I thought they were all terrific people. I liked working with them. I thought the procedures were were very interesting. Um, but I, I wanted to know more about the pathophysiology of what was going on and understand the disease state. And, and most of the folks I was working with weren't that passionate about it. So then. I went into internal medicine mainly because it was just so broad. I really didn't know what area in internal medicine I wanted to go into, but I figured, hey, if I wanted to stay as a proceduralist, I could do something cool in that regard. And so when I first went in, I thought, you know, maybe I wanted to do emergency medicine or critical care or something with procedures involved with it. And back in those days, you know, you didn't have a specific emergency medicine specialty. Um, you know, those were just internists that wanted to specialize in emergency medicine or surgeons who wanted to do the, the trauma surgery kind of stuff. Um, I went to a residency that was like really, really, um, busy. And so, you know, we were doing every other night call in our ICUs and every third night call and all the other specialties. And, um, I don't know, something just kind of tripped in me that said, uh, You know, I've always liked microbiology. I've always liked infectious diseases. I could see myself getting burned out if I was doing emergency medicine or critical care medicine, and so, you know, I went into infectious diseases about as far as way from being a surgeon or a (laughs) procedure as you can get. And that's again what I would tell young people is, you know, you just gotta stay open to things and kind of be true to yourself. And then uh, within infectious diseases, um, you know, I did a. Uh, Jokingly, the fellowship that would never end. So I I did four (laughs) years of of training and spent a couple years in a staphylococcal pathogenesis laboratory, uh, learning just enough, uh, you know, cell biology and and molecular genetics to become dangerous. And then I came here to really, um, you know, start uh, working on staphylococci. And I did that for a few years. And then um, the gentleman who was here before me, uh, Cal Davis, who you know some people on the call might remember, mm-hmm. uh, Cal was doing infection control here at the medical center, and he was um, mm-hmm. stepping down from that. And so I uh, was asked to step up, and, you know, it, it, it was great. Um, you know I found the questions interesting. Uh, it kind of lent itself to the studies that I was doing with Staphylococci and coagulase negative staph uh, anyway. And so, um, it was kind of a, a natural again, and, uh, you know, really was my career path from there. And then, you know, I, I just stood, stayed around long enough to become the division chief. I think, <laughs> and, um, you know, despite myself, uh, I've been able to, uh, you know, watch the division, uh, do well and grow. And, you know, Rick, you're a perfect example of that coming into division just a few years ago. And, um, it, it's really been a joy to, uh. Um, to see the division do so well. Again, probably despite me, as opposed to because of me.
1: Oh, I think you're too humble. (laughs) But that's great. Great story. Um, And lots to unpack in there, um, as far as things go. And obviously, you've been very successful in investigating and publishing and, and doing lots of things and in those arenas that you just mentioned. We might as well start first with infection control since we are on an infection control podcast after all. So um, so um, starting in infection control, you, you've grown the program here significantly. I think we have five medical directors, multiple infection control staff, and you guys touch every bit of the institution here. And that's nothing's been more evident than what's happened in the past couple of years with the pandemic. how did you get the program kind of to roll along and do these do these things?
2: Um, you know I, I don't know the answer to that, Rick. I think that um, again, you know I'm really blessed to be here and it's been a great uh, organization and institution and I think we've grown as um, success allows us and and I think that you know, we've, again, looked at problems and emergencies, uh, to some degree, as also as opportunities. And so every time you're able to, you know, step into a situation where you can figure out an outbreak and and help somebody uh, navigate that, and every time that you can introduce some evidence-based practices and show that you've had impact on you know, a device associated infection or a multi-drug resistant pathogen or what have you. Um, you know, th- those things you need to um, keep as feathers in your cap and then, you know, trade them in when it's time to ask for resources. And so we've been able to do that. And, and you know, again, I've been really lucky to work in an organization where uh, the administration uh, do value uh, those things that, that we've been able to do and, and you know, have seen uh, the value of infection prevention, and uh, you know, have invested in it. So uh, by doing that, you know, we've slowly been able to add resources uh, with regard to our IP. Um, you know, personnel. Uh, we've been able to always work closely with our clinical microbiologists and do some of the molecular epidemiology. That's really interesting. Whether that's um, you know a few years ago doing pulse field gels, or now being able to do some whole genomic uh, sequencing to really start to look at uh, the way things are transmitted in the organization. And then, as you mentioned, you know, if there's ever been a time when infection prevention has shown its value, it's got to be around the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So, you know, it's just, it's just been, um, you know, like so much other things, uh, a little bit of luck, a little bit of skill, uh, a little bit of perseverance. And that, that would be the other thing, I guess I would mention for folks who are just starting in the field is that you really have to look at a lot of issues as sort of a, you know, a battle of attrition and guerrilla warfare, and you just, uh, you just never go away, you just never quit. And you may not win the day, you may not win the battle. But again, if you stay focused on what is the problem, what's the goal? uh, What are the things I need to bring in to to fix that? um, Eventually, the science always wins, right? You know, eventually, the truth comes out, and uh, the way to approach it, if it's driven by, you know, clear thought and evidence, you're, you're eventually going to carry the day.
0: It sounds like you are one to never waste a good emergency.
2: Um, I try not to. You know, it's one of my favorite sayings is, you know, don't waste a good crisis. And so uh, um, when, we, when we do, um, you know, identify a problem, it's, it's always thought of as to some degree an opportunity as well.
0: That's great.
1: Some of the things that I know you've done in infection prevention, you talked about some of the devices. You guys have done some studying on different IV-type materials as far as infection prevention or how you handle them and clean them and everything else. Can you talk about how that idea came about and how that's been used in practice?
2: Yeah, thanks, Rick. So again, um, you know, stemming from my interest in coagulase negative staff and how Staph epidermidis goes about adhering to biomaterials and, you know, creating um, the the biofilm and antibiotic uh, resistance and the like, you know, we carried a lot of those things from the lab into the clinics. And, you know, how do we prevent uh, catheter-related infections and and what's the best way of uh, going about doing that? So, um, you know, some of the stuff I worked on early in my career were some of the, um, you know, antiseptic antibiotic uh, bonded catheters. And, um, you know, to this day, I'm really proud of the the trial that we did uh, with regard to the second generation silver sulfadiazine uh, chlorhexanine bonded catheter. It it truly, I think to this day, might be the biggest study that's been done uh, on those uh, devices. And, um, you know, it was really well done, uh, randomized prospective, uh, uh, multi-center study, and really showed the value of, um, you know, some of those approaches to preventing infection. So, um, you know, again, it was, it was uh, a, a lot of work. Uh, by the time we got it published, this is, this is kind of a funny story. Um, we, we got it published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And frankly, by the time it was done with all of the reviewers and revisions and stuff, I had three PhD uh, biostatisticians working on the project. And I, I really couldn't understand most of the statistics that were being done. Um, and it never changed the, the conclusion or the recommendations at all. You know, we, we, we sliced and diced it every single way that anybody could think of. And it, it always came out the same. Um, so, you know, one of my favorite sayings is also, uh, you know, lies, damn lies statistics.
1: <laughs>
2: and statistics of that, that, um, you know, we were just uh, just torturing this data, every single way that the reviewers asked us to do so and it, it just, you know, stayed true the whole time and so again, uh, you know, if, if what you're doing is driven by the science it usually comes out okay. Um, From there, you know, we did a lot of work with with regard to the connectors. And we were, um, unfortunately, and, you know, maybe this is another example of of Don't Waste a Good Crisis. Um, We introduced a a, a positive displacement uh, connector valve um, back uh, many, many years ago. And we saw a dramatic rise in our bloodstream infection rate. And so, you know, um, we published that, we, we turned it into the, uh, into the FDA. It, it, again, it continues to be a, a heavily cited paper um, and tells you, you know, kind of a cautionary tale that even small little changes in your, in your line or in the line apparatus or in the way you care for lines can have a big impact on patients. And so, you know, stay tuned to that when you see these warning signals Um, you know, pay attention to them and and address them. And so that was, again, a a place where I thought we did a service to the field by, you know, publishing that, uh, really bringing it to people's attention. Uh, Again, I work in an organization that, you know, never told me to shy away from those things uh, to, you know, if we see some sort of a a problem that has uh, arisen in our organization to uh, tell people about it and to, you know, make sure that, that folks can benefit uh from from the knowledge that we've gained Um, you know we've done some some work on uh different kinds of dressings and how to care for the catheters and how to scrub the hubs and stuff like that so it's 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 been an interest of mine uh really from day one and i think we've you know managed to uh push the field forward um, uh, in that regard
1: and, uh, and a lot of that research that you've done has, has gone into practice, right? I mean, and ultimately that's the goal is to keep the patient safe and to try to find things that help, don't hurt, et cetera.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, people need to keep their eye on the prize. And uh, at the end of the day, you really are trying to figure out what's the best way to care for people and, and to give the safest care uh, that you can. Um, And, you know, some of these ideas, Rick, you know, aren't, you know, Nobel Prize winning sort of research. Um, You know, some of them are very, very practical and things that, um, you know, people can really do in uh, their own settings. Um, You know, one, one question that we asked a number of years ago around our connector valve, for instance, was, you know, how long do you have to scrub them? Uh, in order to get decent disinfection of, uh, of the particular connector that we were using on our intravascular catheters. And you know, nobody really knew, you could find all kinds of stuff out there in the literature of people saying that you needed to scrub them for you know, 30 seconds. Um, and at that time we were using a very, very simple split septum uh, connector. It was about the, the simplest device that we could use mainly because it was easy to clean but we went in and very, very simple study. We just simply took uh, people who had a central venous catheter and had connectors and we um, cultured them after doing different times of disinfection. And so, you know, we would approach a patient and we came in and they had a central venous catheter and they had obviously connectors on all the lumens. And if we found a lumen, that uh, was not being used for one patient, we would just simply culture it without disinfecting it. That was our control group. And then the next connector that we encountered, we scrubbed it for five seconds and then cultured it. And the way we cultured it was just simply pressing the uh, diaphragm of the connector to an auger plate. And so then we would go to the next one and do 10 seconds and culture it, 15 seconds, and then finally 30 seconds. And there isn't a nurse alive that will <laughs> scrub a hub for 15 or 30 seconds. Right. It, it is absolutely an interminable amount of time. And I know that because I was the guy who was scrubbing the hub before we would go and do the culture, right? And I would run out of things to talk to the patient about within that 30 seconds, you know, it it, it it like it really becomes awkward as you sit there and you're scrubbing it, and you say, "Wow, you know, uh, looks like it's going to be a nice day today." And uh, how are you feeling? And da 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 da. Um, and you know, thirty seconds is just unbelievably long. Yet, if you go out there in the literature, you'll still find recommendations for scrubbing hubs for thirty seconds. There's nobody who does that. So again, what we found in our system was five seconds for that particular type of connector worked great. And I think it was, you know, a real um, benefit to our bedside staff to reassure them that if they did a five second scrub, which you can do, you know, that's short enough to where it's, it's really doable, uh, was perfectly acceptable and really did disinfect the hubs quite nicely. So, you know, again, a real practical study, uh, fairly straightforward, pretty easy to do. There's no reason why folks out in practice, uh, you know, even in community settings, couldn't do something like that.
0: That is super cool. Um, Yay, yeah, science. <laughs>
2: well, um, you know, you just have to, you know, again, uh, when you see an issue or a question that comes up, if you don't find good answers to it that have evidence, it should ring a little bell to say, you know, how can I, how can I better answer this? What can I do to look at this a little bit more closely? Uh, what can we do to push the field a little bit forward? And again, Um, You know, there's a huge need for really large cluster randomized, well funded, uh, you know, uh, funded at the national level kind of studies, but there's also stuff that just, you know, uh, somebody with a curious mind can attack.
0: Yeah, and I think it's, it's fair to say that if you've had that question in practice, probably somebody else has too. So, if you find a problem, think about it very cool. Um, So, as a department lead, um, you do a lot of recruiting for the program. Um, A little birdie told me that you had a lot of fun recruiting and uh, were able to keep the program fresh and interesting for people. Um, Would you like to talk about your recruitment efforts?
2: Well, um, Sarah, my philosophy for recruitment has been I don't know several several things I would mention. Um, number one is we're always looking for talent. So even if we don't have a position that's open, um, you know, it's it's people should send their CVs and express their interest because um, it's amazing how often um, you know you're able to craft a position for somebody who's really talented and you want to to bring them here. Um, The second thing is that my faculty are my best recruitment tool. And quite frankly, anybody looking at the University of Nebraska Medical Center Infectious Disease Division, seeing the incredible faculty that we have here uh, would say, wow, what a terrific place. They must be doing something right and and I want to go there. And so again, I would, uh, you know, encourage folks to just go on our website and look at the amazing people that, that we have here. And again, I don't really claim much credit for that. Uh, most of it is the faculty themselves uh, working hard, doing well, um, you know, publishing, presenting, uh, carrying the, the UNMC flag and really improving, um, you know, the reputation of the organization and, uh, and what we do. And they're all just great people. You know, that's the other thing is that they're just really nice, really smart, um, really, you know, uh, talented folks. And then the third thing is, um, you just give people an opportunity and then try to get out of their way. Um, you know, I've, I've tried not to make people's lives any more difficult than they have to be and trying to find, you know, opportunities and resources to let these really smart, talented, hardworking people, uh, do the best that they can. And um, so far that, uh, that uh, you know, recipe has worked really well. And uh, we've got an amazing faculty here um, that, you know, again, uh, despite what I may do, they're just uh, doing great stuff. Agree. Yes,
0: I will agree with you as well. I've worked with quite a few of them on the ICAP team and all of them are just fantastic.
2: Yeah, they're, they're you know, like I said, they're really smart, they're really articulate, they work hard, they do good things. And, um, you know, we also have a pretty nice balance within the division. Um, you know, a lot of these folks have very vibrant lives, uh, you know, outside of work, even though work is, is important. And, you know, I kind of, I kind of don't like that, that slogan, work-life balance. It, it, it sort of makes you think that work is not supposed to be part of your life. And for most of us, you know, we've gone into medicine and we've gone into infectious diseases because our work is a huge part of our lives. And so, um, you know, it is important for your satisfaction and for, um, uh, you know, for most of us to really have um, successful careers, and that's a big part of our lives. Uh, But having said that, you know, uh, most everybody in the division have, uh, you know, families and interests outside of medicine, and, and many of them are doing Amazing things, uh, you know, outside their their sort of uh, uh, careers as well. So uh, that that's something to to keep in mind uh, with regard to recruitment, I guess. And then, um, you know, we just have such great diversity in the division as well. You know, we've got a pretty even mix of of men and women. Um, you know, uh, old, young. Um, Folks from different ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds—it's uh, a fun place to be, just uh, from that standpoint. That people have different backgrounds and different ways of thinking of things, and I think it's been a pretty safe environment for for folks to, um, you know, to to not be uh, concerned about some of their differences, and in fact, uh, kind of celebrate them.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's been a great transition for me, that's for sure. And certainly the I think the younger uh, people in the division certainly bring a ton of energy and enthusiasm for, uh, you know, growing uh, their career and, and, you know, clinical care and everything else. So it's, it's terrific. Um, as you transitioned into uh, the into leadership role and I, I know you enjoy patient care and you still do that did, did some of that any of that change for you as far as how many how much time you have seeing patients since you're doing many meetings and administrative things now?
2: <laughs> um, you know there there are a lot of administrative tasks that um, I'm asked to do and um, I do enjoy patient care so I don't, I don't plan on ever... Giving that up. And I think that particularly for infection control, you know, in order to maintain your street credibility, you, you got to be at the bedside. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've been on infectious diseases rounds where I find some issue that, um, you know, I bring back to the to the department and say, hey, you know, we got to address this. Or um, as often as not, it's something that we worked on previously and we solved. And guess what? You know, it wasn't hardwired, and it it didn't get solved, and it's back. And you just don't know that until you're out there in the trenches and and realize that something that you think that uh, you addressed, um, you know, hasn't uh, really been solved and hardwired. And so you have to go back to the drawing board and, and work on that again. Uh, so that um, you know, I I really do like my clinical uh, my clinical practice, and you know. Went in to be a doctor to obviously to, to help care for patients. That's a that's an important part of who I am and what I do. Um, the the administrative stuff, um, you know, some of it is is uh, interesting and useful, and part of it isn't. And you try to minimize the stuff that uh, is is busy work, and you try to concentrate on on more of the other stuff. And quite frankly, um, some of the the work I do in that regard, I uh, throw myself on the sword so that some of the other faculty can go and do some of the stuff that they want to do that's fun.
1: Yep, very good, very good.
2: Um, The other thing that I would mention that I don't know um, where this fits in, but you mentioned how great it is to have young people uh, and the energy they bring. And I would be quick to point out that our fellowship uh, serves that role for the division in a lot of ways um, you know, again these uh, have are, are really terrific people who are training to be infectious disease docs some of them wanting to go into infection control and antimicrobial stewardship and those those folks uh, obviously me personally I like to work with but um, you know a lot of the fellows go into all kinds of things but they're they are very energetic and um, you know bring a lot of uh, energy and um, you know uh, New ideas and things to the division. And that's a place that uh, I'm very proud of the division and the fact that we've been able to, to grow our ID fellowship during a time when it's been a tough sell to some extent. Um, so we've grown from very, very modest beginnings just a few years ago to the point now where we have um, you know three fellows in each of the years of their clinical training. And uh, for the first time next year, we're actually having a fellow go into one of our third year slots that we've been able to, uh, to create. And so that's been, uh, that's been great. And, uh, you know, Dr. Van Schoenefeld, he's probably been on your podcast, and um, uh, Dr. Zimmer uh, are the program director and associate program director and have done a, a terrific job with uh, growing that fellowship program.
1: Agree, agree. They certainly keep me honest. You know, I've done a lot of clinical work, as you know, and sometimes you just get into a routine and you just do things and they they ask you questions and you're like, yeah, why, why do I do it that way? And is that really the best way to do it? So you want to make sure that you're, that you're doing things the latest and the the best way possible. And so they do keep you on your toes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's, that's uh, one of the benefits of being in a training program with uh, trainees that are bright, uh, they do ask those uh, those questions. And, um, you know, I think that you, again, have to be intellectually honest. And sometimes uh, you do discover that you're doing something for not the best reasons.
1: Well, um, and, and along with infection prevention stuff, um, you know, we'd be a little bit remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the pandemic the last couple of years. And obviously, people have heard you talk on various platforms and media and everything else but behind the scenes infection prevention was very involved with keeping patients and staff safe from the get-go of this thing Um, we we started many things to try to, to do this without really any knowledge at the beginning right so we just said we think this is how this is spread these are things that we think we need to do and then we modified as things go along and obviously we may not be completely at a point where we can unpack some of this as we'll talk in a few minutes about it. But as you look back at the last couple of years uh, and how much we've learned and how we've come along, what, what would you say about kind of infection prevention during this pandemic and how it kind of evolved um, if you had to sit down and say, hmm, what do I think we did right? What we did wrong? Uh, those kinds of things.
2: Yeah, Rick, that's a a great question. And I completely agree with you that um, in those initial days of the pandemic, um, it was uh, amazingly stressful. And I think that the uh, infection preventionists and those of us in infection control uh, served the organization incredibly well uh, by really reinventing the way we care for folks. I mean, it, it was from A to Z. It was You know, how do we screen and encounter patients? How do we put measures into place, you know, at the front door uh, to maintain safety? How do we uh, do procedures safely? How do we talk our colleagues off the cliff uh, with regard to, um, you know, being able to do things uh, safely? Um, You you know, um, how do we stretch our PPE? You know, it's these are all kind of painful memories for me to tell you the truth. But, um, you know, for instance, in our organization, I think we again served the the organization, the community and even the field um, really well when we brought out our UV uh, disinfection towers and showed how we could use those uh, effectively and appropriately to um, you know, decontaminate uh, our N95 respirators. And so we were able to stretch our supply of uh, N95s dramatically by doing that and uh, you know, do it in a safe way. And so we, we truly were able to um, you know, have all of our healthcare providers who were encountering uh, potential COVID positive patients uh, be really well protected with uh, respiratory protection. So, you know, we've never wavered off of that um, from day one, that if somebody in our organization was going to encounter an N95, uh, I mean, a, a COVID patient, they were gonna have an N95. They were going to be wearing a face shield. Uh, we had gowns and gloves, and then we worked hard with our engineers to retrofit our units so that they would have negative pressure isolation, uh, airborne isolation. And um, you know that was another example of, of working innovatively with the experts that you have uh, to maintain the, the safety of our, of our healthcare providers and maintain the best care for, for our patients. And so um, you know, we were able to work with our engineers to convert um, rooms and units to relative negative pressure. It may not have been quite up to snuff with regard to the, the regulations for airborne isolation but it was a whole lot better than nothing. And so uh, again, we, we did what we had to do in order to, uh, to maintain the best care that we could. So um, you know, hats off to, to everybody in the infection prevention world who dealt with these things and had to figure out uh, how to stretch their laboratory resources, their PPE resources, uh, how to invent new policies and procedures uh, from A to Z across the board. Uh, and that's, that's really what the profession did you know, not only here, but uh, all across the country.
1: Yeah, you guys, UV program that you developed was uh, broadly, pretty broadly adopted, it, it seemed like, uh, it, which has got to be, you know, something to be proud of.
2: Yeah, it was adopted, you know, we, we very quickly, I remember, um, you know, the first week that we worked on it and the first weekend where we got it finalized, um, you know, put out a publication that uh, was, was on our website and uh, you know, people turned to that uh, uh, very, very frequently to see how to, to you know, best stretch their uh, N95 uh, resources. Um, and, and frankly, the website was uh, cited uh, in a number of publications as being one of the best non-governmental uh, sources for information on COVID-19. Uh, so for a while, when you went on up to date, it actually linked to the Nebraska Medicine Infection Control website to tell people how to take care of uh, COVID patients. So I'm I'm very proud of that. And again, um, had a very minimal role. There were so many other people who who worked really hard on uh, you know these different projects and policies and getting them out on the web. And and again, our philosophy was to you know share this as widely as we possibly could. So this was all on a you know open website that anybody could come in and and take our uh, practices and procedures and use them. Um, you know, this kind of follows in suit with what we did with stewardship. And so the the antimicrobial stewardship uh, website has likewise been cited a number of times as a real resource. And it was because of that same philosophy of, you know, how do we figure something out, um, how do we make it useful for the broad population and uh, share things as widely as we possibly can? So, you know, Anytime I'm out there speaking on infection control or stewardship, uh, I tell people to liberally steal from us. You know, please <laughs> use whatever they find useful, and um, you know, if if they want to cite us, that's appreciated. But mostly, it's just you know, uh, use the information for the betterment of uh, of their patients and and for the expansion of the field. I
0: think that really just shows the passion and willingness to help during the pandemic, you know, it takes the whole team to get all of that information out there. And we just wanted to share it with everybody that would listen. So,
2: yeah. And Sarah, you know, um, I, I think that you just mentioned, you know, that it takes the whole team and, and I want to emphasize that, that, um, you know, so many people step forward uh, during the pandemic and, you know, memory is short. Uh, part of it is we purposely want to blot some of those days out. But um, you know, we had such a great uh, group of folks to work with, not only here in the infection control department and the infectious disease department, but you know, when you think about the first line providers who were in our emergency department, who were in our COVID units, you know, prior to having any vaccine protection, you know um, they, they went for a year without you know, being able to treat COVID or really being able to prevent it with vaccine, you know, putting themselves in harm's way uh, to care for the populace. I mean, there's just no better examples of heroes and people willing to, to sacrifice for the common good. And I, I think the memory of, of the public is unfortunately short and of administration is unfortunately short. And uh, those were days when people really stood up uh, you know, places were celebrating them. You saw healthcare providers being, uh, you know, depicted as superheroes, Uh, you know, going out on your doorstep at 5 p.m. every evening and banging pots and pans to thank, you know, your healthcare providers and your first responders uh, for the work that we're doing. Uh, You know, that, I don't know if people remember that uh, as much as they should. And so unfortunately, you know, with, with the emergency not being quite so dire, um, you know, people instead now are are arguing with their with their public health officials and not respecting their their expertise and the recommendations that they're making. Instead, it's unfortunately been uh politicized and polarized, and we're fighting with each other over some of these things, which is probably my biggest disappointment uh of, of the whole pandemic. And I know Rick, you were kind of Asking for some retrospective look at it. And, you know, I think the the really shining points are the people who gave so much of themselves, and the the darkest points are the misinformation, disinformation, uh, information wars, and the uh, polarity that uh, has been driven uh, here more lately.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, uh, and my biggest fear is is that we're going to not pay attention to history and be doomed to repeat this again at some point in the near future if we we forget, if we don't remember and don't prepare, don't get the resources that we need to be ready for this to happen again. Because I think the recent history has shown that something like this is likely.
2: Um, Yeah, I I think you're completely correct that um, it's very, very likely that, um, number one, uh, this pandemic's not over, and you know here we are uh, coming up on St. Patrick's Day, um, you know of 2022, uh, with numbers pretty low and people feeling really good, um, but the chances are are very very high that we will see um, additional variants spin off, um, additional waves of illness. Um, luckily, we're so much better now than we were two years ago with regard to, you know, having a vaccine that works, having PPE that works, uh, having medications that work. Uh, you know, we're just we're just so much better off than we were. But I, I do share your concern that people's memories are short, that once the crisis uh, is averted that, um, you know, folks want to forget and not learn the lessons. Um, you know, we do get better, we do have, you know, resources that continue to be funneled into the field. And, you know, when you've been around as long as I have and you can think back to, uh, you know, SARS and MERS and Ebola and, uh, you know, H1N1 uh, pandemic, et cetera. um, You know, we do incrementally get better and more prepared but just not enough. And, And I'm hoping like you that this pandemic has been uh, a strong enough signal to folks to say, "Hey, you need to invest in public health. You need to invest in infectious diseases. You need to invest in infection control, um, so that you know maybe the the next one isn't quite as rough."
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you talk about people having short memories. Um, you know, if we go clear back to the Spanish flu, right? That kind of reflects our global climate right now. You know the end of a pandemic and the beginning of a war going on and how those two could possibly affect each other. I think we're oh, kind of-
2: Sarah, I, I hope that you're, you're not right about uh, you know, the, the scope of the conflict, but-
0: um, Well, you know, I hope I'm not right either.
2: But... Um, you know, one of the, the effects of the, the 1918 pandemic is actually credited with bringing an early conclusion to World War I. Uh, simply because you couldn't mobilize troops and bring them together in the camps without uh, an influenza epidemic. And so um, it was hard for nations actually to to fight with one another when all their servicemen were getting felled uh, by the influenza. So, uh, you know, I guess, um, you know, I I hope that this conflict in Ukraine uh, doesn't um, spiral and get any bigger, but uh, it certainly does emphasize the uncertainty of our world.
1: Um, one thing you were mentioning was about other variants spinning off, and so I just wanted to touch base on this now. So, you know, things in the US and certainly things locally are about as good as they've been in the last multiple months. However, there certainly are some warning signs on the horizon with uh, BA2 or the stealth variant or Delta cron, whatever you want to call it, we typically call it BA2. So what kinds of things are you looking at and just uh, discussing amongst ourselves about, you know, hey, this could be coming. These are things that we need to do now and keep an eye on.
2: Yeah. So, Rick, I think um, you know what I'm telling folks uh, today is that uh, enjoy this hiatus that we're having, right? So, as you've pointed out, the the, the rates of infection in the community seem to be uh, very low and manageable. Um, uh, you know, albeit that's probably an underestimate because so much of our testing is now off the radar. But you know, still we're seeing a declining hospitalization rate. Um, you know, we're seeing a declining percent positivity rate on those tests that are being done. So all the all the indicators are that uh, we're in a pretty good spot. Um, so I am recommending to folks that you know enjoy this while you can. Uh, we do have finally spring arriving. So, you know, you can, you can have greater opportunity to uh, have recreation in a safer outdoor setting, um, but enjoy this. Uh, that doesn't mean throw caution to the wind. That doesn't mean that you go and do foolish things, uh, particularly if you're at high risk or you're unvaccinated, um, but enjoy this period of time. And I don't know how long it will last, um, you know, and anybody who tells you that they do know, I would turn around and run quite frankly, uh, because anybody who tells you what things are going to look like in three months or six months from now, um, we just don't have the understanding of the of the virus and the way it interacts with the human population um, to really predict these things. But what what we can say with some degree of confidence is that um, it's very likely that we'll see additional variants. Um, they may be, um, you know, more dangerous, and so people have you know, I think uh, stated, uh, you know, without, I I don't know the the basis for it, but they have stated that, oh, this virus is just going to continue to evolve and become uh, less virulent over time and become, you know, like any of the other coronaviruses that cause the common cold, for instance. Um, You know, maybe that'll happen, but I don't know that there's any guarantee for that. And, you know, it's, it's certainly possible that uh, with the amount of virus that's in the human population and with the amount of virus that's in human or in uh, animal reservoirs, that we will see, you know, a variant that uh, spins out that is uh, more transmissible and potentially more virulent and evades host immunity. Um, you know, so, so I, I hate to be the, the bearer of bad news, but uh, I think that people Need to be aware of the fact that you know we're not out of this, and it, it could go still in the wrong direction. Um, having said that, again, we're well well better off than we were you know a couple of years ago, with all kinds of tools now and much better understanding. So I'm I'm hopeful that uh, we'll be able to take it better in stride. Um, but you know, I'm telling folks to enjoy this period of time. It may last for a few weeks. It may last for a few months. Maybe we'll get lucky, and and we really will have. Um, variants that emerge that uh, you know, are simply uh, uh, better adapted to live with us instead of uh, you know, preying upon us. And um, you know, maybe, maybe we are in the, the transition to having this become much more of an endemic process rather than an epidemic process. Um, but I think people need to stay nimble, they need to stay aware, they need to keep themselves informed and just be, you know, willing to to revert back to some of those practices if we need to. Um, I know that's not popular, but um, you know, just understand that the recommendations may change, and you may be asked to, you know, distance and wear your mask and uh, avoid crowded settings and all those sorts of things. So um, uh, we'll just have to stay tuned and see what uh, what the future brings us.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Agree, agree completely. Um, one of the new tools that it seems that um, public health is using is wastewater uh, analysis. Um, what is that exactly? Can you explain it? And what is the correlation that they're using when wastewater to try to predict where COVID is and what might happen next?
2: Yeah, so um, you know, we we knew from very early in the pandemic that the virus is shed in the GI tract and can be found in the the feces at high amounts. And so, um, you know, it it makes really great sense that you could monitor the amount of virus in the wastewater and uh, determine what, um, you know, the state of the pandemic was in a community. Um, And so that's really been borne out um, in uh, this uh, wastewater system that now uh, exists throughout the country. And there's hundreds and hundreds of these um, wastewater sampling points now uh, all across the nation that are monitored you know, on, a, on a weekly or every other week basis where you really can get an indicator of what's going on uh, within the community. And so you know, the report that the, is just circulating now here within the last few days is that we do have um, you know, a, a number of wastewater sampling areas that are showing actually an increase now in the amount of virus that they're seeing. And so, um, you know, the, again, the report that's just out here within the last few days is that about a third of the wastewater monitoring stations are noting an increase in virus. Uh, there's about 60% that are showing a decrease, which, you know, again, is, is encouraging. And then there's about 10% that are just about, you know, staying even with the last reports that they had. And they, the CDC updates this about every two weeks. Um, and so that's the kind of the status that we're at right now. Um, you know, this, this does correlate to some degree with um, you know the, the public health practices of kind of saying that most people are in a community where you don't have to wear a mask now and you can relax your precautions. And you would think that that might have uh, the impact of, of increasing transmission a bit, whether that takes off or not um, and really results in another Real substantial wave of increased cases is yet to be seen. Um, And how much of this is due to BA2, um, you know, also remains to be seen. We are obviously seeing the BA2 variant, um, you know, uh, become more well represented, if you will. So, uh, you know, about every two weeks, it seems like it's doubling in the amount that uh, we're seeing and is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 23, 25%. Uh, with the most recent modeling that the CDC has done. Um, so over the last uh, you know month or two, uh, we're seeing it creep upwards. It's still not the predominant uh, strain. Uh, but you know my hope is that we've had enough disease-induced immunity due to BA1 that BA2 is not going to cause a huge upswing in cases. But um, that is, is pretty uh, conjectural on my part. Um, you know, with the wastewater uh, data going up and then the trends in Europe that uh, people are pointing to where they've kind of seen a U-turn in their, in their decreases uh, with the pandemic wave. And so many countries in Europe are seeing an upswing in their cases now. And, and there are obviously reasons why, um, you know, what we see in Europe is, has generally preceded what happens in the United States by a few weeks to a month or two. And so there are a lot of folks who are expressing concern that, that we may be right on the, the uh, upward slope of seeing some additional uh, disease. Um, I think it'll, time will tell obviously. And so again, I've, I've asked people to just, uh, you know stay informed, uh, stay nimble. And uh, if we start to see the rates go back up we may need to put the brakes on again and tell folks to, to cool down a little bit and wear their masks and be careful. Uh, But, uh, you know, again, the message that has come out over and over and over again is that the vaccine has proven uh, useful against all these variants. And even if it doesn't, um, uh, you know, completely eliminate uh, disease, and obviously with the Omicron, it's not eliminated cases, but it has been really protective in um, severe disease and hospitalization and death. And anybody who wants to Protect themselves or the people that they're living with. Uh, you know their community should get vaccinated and should take advantage of the booster dose uh, to become you know up to date on their vaccination.
0: That's all so much great information. I'm really fascinated with the wastewater
2: testing. <laughs> yeah, you know it's it's it makes such uh, obvious sense, and it it has shown. know as we've tracked the waves of the pandemic that it does you know give you an early warning signal of what's going on either going down or going up and so i think people do need to pay attention to it and uh you know again with 30 percent of those wastewater facilities now showing some increase in cases uh it's reason to to you know keep a close eye on it for sure definitely
1: Will be interesting if we can use it in other diseases as well, other you know epidemics or anything like that. Just since the whole network set up, what happens after COVID, you know, whatever whatever after COVID is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I agree, Rick. So anything that is uh, shed in the uh, in the feces or in the urine, you would think uh, would show up in the in the wastewater uh, 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 streams and be able to be detected. And you know, with the molecular tools that we have now, with uh, being able to amplify. Even small amounts of uh, genomic signal, um, you know, it should be a, an awfully sensitive uh, way of detecting these things and tracking what's going on in a community. And you know, you might be able to do it even in a in a smaller uh, microcosm, if you will. If you if you had it, ability to sample, um, you know, streams coming in from different parts of a municipality, uh, you may be able to really um, look and, and detect uh, places that are hotspots as opposed to just doing this in a, in a more broadly um, you know, community or regional setting.
1: Yep, agree completely, agree. Well, we have taken an hour of your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate you joining us. Did you have any questions for us or, or anything that, you, that we didn't cover today? I mean, obviously we'd have to have you back on to, t- to talk some more again in the future.
2: Where did the um, dirty drinks come from? I mean, uh, we could have thought of all kinds of uh, titles for an infection control uh, podcast, but where did, where did the dirty drinks come from?
1: That was a Sarah, uh, Sarah's the creative one. So I'll let her explain it to you.
2: (laughs) So I was
0: thinking microbiology, things are dirty. And then our original concept was getting together for drinks and having a chat. Um, We we're kind of told we couldn't do that because of the whole grant funding thing. So now it's like a, a, the logo is a coffee cup with a little microbe on it. So like a coffee chat, but talking about dirty things. It was
1: originally a, a martini glass. We yeah. planned, we were trying to actually find a place that we could go and record, uh, kind of like the Science Cafe kind of had done that, you know, yeah. it, uh, but that was our original thoughts until we were told that was a, a, a bad idea.
2: Okay. Well, we'll just have to call it uh what um contagious coffee or loaded <laughs> latte or I don't know something. Uh, we can come
1: up with a nickname for the show too. That's oh, good. Yeah. And if we <laughs> ever
0: if we ever like get over into the private sector and we're not grant funded anymore, we can just like go hang out at a bar.
2: There you go. Micro and Mocha. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> So, you know, um, yeah, uh, it, it's a it's a great, uh, great uh, story. Um, I kind of wondered where that came from. And, you know, yeah, uh, next time we do it, uh, I insist on you guys uh, giving me
1: a, a martini. Sounds like a good plan. We'll do that. Although
2: Manhattans are my drink, if you really wanted to know. <laughs> there we go. Um, you know, the hour went really fast, as it always does, uh, Rick, and, and I just want to express my appreciation to both you and Sarah uh, for two things. Number one, putting up with me for an hour and inviting me, and I'd be happy to come back. And uh, number two, just, you know, again, I think this does uh, serve as another portal for people to get information. Um, you know, it's, it's a great uh, service, and uh, hopefully there's a few little nuggets of, uh, of truth that has come out in our discussion that people can take to heart. Um, So thank you for what you guys are doing.
0: Thank you. We appreciate it. All right. For our listeners out there, thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. Don't forget to join us in the conversation on Twitter at dirty underscore drinks. And we will catch you next time.
1: Thanks. Bye, everyone.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at Dirty Underscore Drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.